Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Synergy Cast. I am your host, Sonia Joffer, and on this week's episode, I invited Marie Tapp, who is a teacher, a youth worker, a mutual aid organizer, and a future mental health professional to join me for a conversation where we introduce the concept of abolition and share our own perspectives on how the current police and prison systems in the U.S. are not working. We also discuss the changes we wish to see for a better future that centers wellness for everyone. I want to put a content warning out there that we do discuss the police and prison systems in this week's episode so if you find that heavy to listen to please utilize that self-care while listening and also take breaks if needed if you want to follow marie and check her out on social media you can do so on her two instagram accounts at mocha bear 24 and at wellness liberation for all also in the episode notes you will find the venmo and email for marie's far Southside mutual aid group which we referred to in this episode So if you have the means and are willing and able, please consider donating and supporting her mutual aid group because as we all know, mutual aids are doing some really important work right now and could really use the support. I also referred to Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, also to her TED Talk in this week's episode. So please, if you are interested in learning more about that, please go check her out. I also linked those two in the notes as well but that's it for the intro i hope you all enjoy listening to the episode i really enjoyed having this conversation with marie and i personally took a lot away from it and learned a lot myself and i'm still continuing to learn so i really appreciate and am grateful to marie for sitting down and sharing her insight with us today So welcome to the show, Marie. I am so excited to have you here. I know that we're going to be talking about something really important today, so I really like appreciate you being here and just sharing your insight with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for thinking of me and inviting me. Yes, of course. Um, so before we get started, what would you like to share about yourself to the listeners? I am by no means an expert <laughs> on the things that I'm going to talk about today. I am a teacher, youth worker, amateur mutual aid organizer, student in the clinical mental health field, learning as I go, uh, having good conversations with different groups of people, trying to find different ways to plug in and, and do good things for my community and people around me. Yeah, definitely. I definitely see that with like the many different roles that you play and like it sounds like you wear many different hats while going <laughs> through life, but with all of those different hats and roles, I feel like you have this like central purpose of just like pushing things forward and like using your talents to move the bar a little bit forward. Um, so I really appreciate that about what you do. And I know we're going to be talking about abolition today. So what got you interested in the topic of abolition and specifically centering wellness in abolition? Um, What got me into the topic or introduced me were two people. So I learned through my relationships and friendships. Um, And so my husband was someone who has spoken to me about abolition early on when we first started dating. And it made me kind of pause and be like, abolition? Interesting. Seems radical. Hmm. And then my good friend, Becca Bretz, whom I hope she gets on this podcast because she's brilliant. 
she also would talk about it a lot just in the work that she's done um uh, the prison work that she's done the prison organization organizing that she's done and so that like first piqued my interest in the concept um and then uh joining byp 100, Black Youth Project 100, the Chicago chapter, getting to hear from other activists who've been doing abolitionist work for a very long time and just hearing their perspectives, um, and then doing my own research on the concept. Yeah, I guess that's what got me into it. Yeah, definitely. And um, for listeners that don't know what abolition is, or maybe have like a very mainstream or stereotypical definition of what abolition is, what, what does the concept of abolition mean to you and how would you describe that? I'm going to use, I'm going to paraphrase Miriam Kaba in that it, for me, it's moving away from the idea of punishment and the idea of policing and prisons as a way to deal with the, the harms that we experience within society. So typically, you know, if a harm or a crime is committed, a person is arrested by the police or people are arrested by the police, they are then put in jail and then we kind of forget about them. And the assumption is that our society is better for it. When in reality, like it's a lot more complicated and that's not actually what happens. Um, sometimes the wrong people go to jail. Some people go to jail for reasons that make no sense. When they're in jail, it's not a rehabilitative space. It's a place that's dehumanizing. And so the world actually isn't better. And then when these people are released, um, they're not supported. And so abolition's like, all right, let's get rid of that whole apparatus and let's try to create other systems of care and other systems of accountability that do not throw away people um, but reintegrate them into the community and encourage behaviors that actually better the community as a whole at least that's my understanding of it yeah i really i really like the way you phrase that and i think you hit on some like really key points like especially with like the prison system and the police system we see a lot of problems with that especially like as a mental health you know, people in the mental health field, that's, there's just so many issues just with that, like with the, like what you mentioned, like it's a very like punitive approach and it's kind of like an out of sight, out of mind type of thing. Like if we don't see it happening too much around us, it's kind of easy to just think of it as not there. But like, you know, these systems are very much, they exist and they're very much in place and they very much harm people, especially people of color specifically black and brown people too. So I think it's really important to discuss these things and unpack it. And also like the term abolition has been around for a very long time. Like this is not, I know it's been heard a lot, um, thrown around a lot over this past summer, specifically with the, with the revolution and the uprising, but it's been around for a really long time. Like I remember I first heard about the term abolition, I think in like grade school. Mm -hmm learned about like with like slavery there was like the abolitionists and then um and they were for abolishing slavery so um as i learned more about abolition i realized that abolition as of currently in 2020 there's still certain things that abolitionists were trying to achieve back in the day when slavery was around that abolitionists now are still trying to fight for those same things um, or similar things. So that's also what I find to be interesting about it, too. Yeah, definitely. I think the common thread is that abolitionists have tried to build systems that recognize the humanity of everyone, yeah. right, and dismantle systems that dehumanize certain groups of people. 
I think that's been like the central, even from slavery, which is all about recognizing the humanity of individuals so that you can release them from bondage. And then now we're talking about abolishing prisons and policing and even just other systems of oppression that hold people in particular spaces. The key is recognizing the humanity or as like Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, like recognizing that life is precious wherever it's being, it's held. Life is precious. And that's good that there's people who are, have continued this tradition and are doing amazing work in the city of Chicago and all across the world. But it's also a little frustrating to think that we have not evolved to just recognizing that basic fact. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's been over 400 years since slavery, mm-hmm. I would put in quotations, ended. Um, cause I feel like, although maybe that form of slavery ended, I feel like certain forms of slavery still exist, especially with like the prison system and like prison labor and all of that. Um, so that's why I put that in quotations, but yeah, you're right. Like it's very, it's very, it's very good to see that this work being done and the people that have so much passion for it. But at the same time, I hear you, it's very frustrating and it's like, why is this still an issue? Mm-hmm. like over 400 years later like mm-hmm. what's going on and so yeah I hear you with that for sure and I, I know we mentioned this a little bit but I've heard a lot of people think that abolition is just getting rid of the police what would you say to somebody who thinks that abolishing the police is one of the only forms of abolition out there well one I understand because that's how unfortunately it's packaged in the in the media I think abolition as a concept and even as like an ideology is very complex for me when i one of my like hesitations was like oh well how are we gonna keep people safe from dangerous people we need the police you know like that was like where i was i guess a few years ago and i've since moved to more of like abolition being about a radical amount of care and it's funny, my friend Becca actually mentioned this concept too, and I think hopefully she does her PhD on this, but the illusion of safety and this truth of life that we are really, we have to keep ourselves safe and that we're kind of at each other's mercy, right? And so uh, if we got rid of the police, that is one harm that we're addressing, but there's all these other harms that we inflict upon each other. And we would have to really systematically attack the roots behind all those harms. And once we dismantle those roots or just pull up those roots, um, we'll be able to create systems of care. And like when we're talking about abolition, it, you know, getting rid of police is one part of that process so that we're not supporting a group of people who actively harm another group of people. Um, it's also getting rid of prisons. Um, it's also getting rid of some of these oppressive uh, mechanisms within other institutions that don't come under as much scrutiny. So like I work in education and I understand how harmful it can be. The healthcare system, I think our just our economic system in general, housing system is all those things, right? Because we're radicalizing care. So we're really trying to put like a care bubble around <laughs> everybody. Yeah. And then getting rid of police just because of the role they have played and continue to play in our society is one step. Yeah, no, I like how you mentioned that, that there's like so many different dimensions to abolition. And like, it's not just getting rid of the police will help and will move things forward. But then there's so many other avenues too that also need that same care 
um, as well that abolition strives to achieve too. So I like how you mentioned that. And I know that the title of this episode is Centering Wellness in Abolition. So what exactly does that mean to center wellness? And what are some different ways that you incorporate that into the work that you do too? Mm-hmm. So I think when um, we're trying to figure out how a group of people live together and ideally everyone kind of gets along, everyone has their role, everyone's contributing, everyone's getting their needs met. Um, but then the question is like, how do you deal with harms when they are committed by individual people or groups of people within a society. And our solution so far has been the creation of police and the building of prisons. And those are responses. They are reactive responses to harm, but they don't get at the root of why harm happens in the first place. And what I'm learning just through research and again, learning from other people is that, and working with people, just been working direct service for like 10 years now with different groups of people, harm usually comes as a byproduct of a need not being met, whether it's a physical need like food, water, or like a housing need like shelter or a mental health or mental wellness need. And so for me, as I'm like kind of using my Virgo mind to, to get to the root of the matter, I'm like, all right, it seems like if we can cater to people's wellness, um, they are less likely than to commit a harm. And there's less of a need for, I don't think they're like policing is the solution to this, but there's less of a implied need for policing or prisons because we've gotten to the root of why this harm has happened and we're putting our resources to addressing that root. And usually that root is building up wellness within individuals and groups of people. Um, and then how I engage in that, one tangible way is through mutual aid work. So simply getting people either money in their pocket or groceries, so just food. It's just one basic thing we can do. I mean, we ha- it's a donation-based project. And so when we get donations from folks, we try to share it with people in our community who normally don't have access to that type of help. The other way right now primarily is teaching because that's my full-time job. And <laughs> when you're working with young people, especially young people who are in a space that they didn't necessarily sign up to be in, you're always trying to center wellness as a way to make this process more enjoyable and more fulfilling or as fulfilling and as enjoyable as it can be for someone who doesn't necessarily want to be in school. You're also dealing with students and people who have difficult home lives, just things, things are just going on. And so my job is always having to like center their wellness and kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once I do that, then we're able to get to like social studies or American history, world history. Um, so those are two ways, mutual aid and teaching right now, primarily. Eventually, I'd like to uh, be in your field. Um, so I'm studying clinical mental health right now, but love to cater to the mental health of the people I work with. I, it really reminds me a lot about like radical empathy, just like being able to like put yourself in someone else's shoes or like look, not even that, but like maybe a better way to phrase that would be like seeing people through their whole context, like where they're coming from, what their childhood was like, what their cultural background is, what their social class is, like some of the traumas that they've experienced. Um, I feel like that, that it reminds me of that when you, when you were sharing that about abolition and centering wellness it's like really hard to like think of things in that way. Like it's really hard to be like, take a step back and be like, Oh, well, why is this person like causing harm? Um, I feel like a lot of people just jump to like, there was harm and that's it. They need to be punished case closed, you know, Mm -hmm. 
but I feel like, especially as mental health professionals, we are like conditioned throughout our training to see people in their whole context and to take a step back and see the behavior because obviously seeing the behavior is important but then also like taking a step back and being like well why is this behavior occurring and um what what needs are being met and what needs aren't being met because like you said usually when someone is causing harm there is a need that's not being met or is not satisfied so um i really like that point that you made for sure and so what are some changes that you envision for the world in regards to abolition and centering wellness? I know we like talked about a little bit of, about it already, but diving a little bit deeper into that, what changes would you want to see in the world? The thing that comes to the top of mind is like our, the defund CPD campaign, but defunding policing and reinvesting that money into things that we, people have already done the research. <laughs> They've written so many papers and books about the types of interventions that are needed to reduce harmful behavior. And so when we're talking about investing in people's mental health, you have rappers like G. Herbo paying for people's therapy, right? Um, building more grocery stores, building more libraries, building more health clinics, because Southside is also like losing one of a health center um, in the middle of a pandemic. And so raising the minimum wage, right? I, I believe in universal basic income. You should have your basic needs met, right? Um, I would love to see these things. I think addressing things like housing, income, food, clean water, um, and then also addressing um, enrichment or just things like mental health support. So again, like with clinics, more youth centers, resource centers for folks, not just youth, because sometimes we focus a lot on youth and that's, they do need a lot of support, but also adults who need to find, need a space to use a computer with good internet to apply for a job or to check in on things, check their email. Everyone should have basic internet access. And the money, like in Chicago specific, the money that we spend on our policing is like astronomical. It's 40% of our city budget. And we are still experiencing record highs of, of murders and shootings. And so it's not working. We have doubled down on policing and it's not working. No one's safer because of it. And so it only makes sense that you would reinvest in the things that people are asking for. And you can even spend money if you're not convinced, re spend more money on research. <laughs> it's the reasons why people commit these harms. I think that's, you know, that's that. Yeah. Going back to academia. But um, I think that's what I would like to see. Reinvesting in things that we already know are necessary. Jobs, housing, food, water, mental and physical health, at the very least. It goes back to like that community care aspect because I've been thinking a lot about that concept too, about how like their self-care is great. Um, I love talking about self-care. It's, it's amazing. But I, I like the aspect of community care too, because it really focuses on how there are some things that one person cannot take care of for themselves. Like you mentioned, like, you can do all the self-care you want, but if you don't have running clean water, if you don't have food every day, if you don't have access to education or mental health resources or substance use resources or even like a shelter, like a roof over your head, like your self-care is not going to do anything. Um, mm -hmm. And you probably can't even engage in self-care as you would want to, too. So I like that concept of community care that recognizes like some of the things that we've been talking about, like there's some things that the community needs to tackle as a whole. And I feel like 
with abolition, that's the whole premise of it is like coming together as a community to, to tackle these problems and to center wellness. So yeah, yeah, that's us. It made me think of that too. Yeah. I mean, abolition is also anti-capitalist kind of inherently. And I think capitalism, especially when it comes to like self-care and kind of our capitalism and our just individualistic culture really does center the self. Um, it doesn't allow us to think bigger and say like, oh, um, I exist within a community. Yeah. Everything is interdependent. So even if I'm saying I'm doing self-care, my luxury sometimes is tied to somebody else's suffering. Mm-hmm. So we have to always be mindful of this bigger system that we're operating in and how it allows some people to engage in self-care and other people not to. So then if you're, once you are aware of that, then you're like, oh, collective care. Because when we're talking about systems changes, that's collective. That affects the collective. So that is collective care. It's challenging systems um, that are oppressive to any member or uh, members within your society. That's engaging collective care. And abolition is definitely in that line of thinking. Yeah, definitely. And I I like how you also mentioned, like, about youth, because I feel like you're right. Like, I feel like there's a big emphasis on youth and, like, educating the youth informing the youth and I think that's super important I also feel like what you mentioned a lot of people forget about adults and I feel like there's so much like care and like all this like attention on oh the youth the youth and then once that youth becomes an adult it's like all right well you're on your own now um so I like how you mentioned that we also need to give care for our adults too like because especially adults that are around youth too um and so we all know that like youth are can be a direct reflection of the adults around them so um i like how you mentioned that point too that's really important it is um one of the students i've worked with in the past like a lot of her stressors despite the work that we were doing together were coming from her guardian and then when i got to know her guardian a little bit i was like oh man you could really benefit from some therapy, just somebody to talk to. Cause I, you just, you sense the frustration, the anger, almost the helplessness too, just because of the circumstance that they were in. And if that adult, that guardian had had the support that she needed, it would have done wonders one for her and her body and her wellness, but also for the, the children that she was taking care of. Yeah. And it is unfortunate that we tended to, again, this goes to that punitive. Well, you should have gotten a better job. You should have done better in school. You should have taken care of your money. You shouldn't have had those kids. Like all, it gets very punitive. And then, so we rationalize why we treat people the way we do um, and abandon them and then get surprised when then they find other means to get their needs met that may or may not help the collective good. Exactly. Yeah. And also like reminds me of responsibility. And Mm -hmm. I feel like with, especially with Western culture, it's very like, it centers like autonomy of the individual which has its pros for sure but I feel like it lacks that community aspect too because when you center the individual so much then I feel like that's where that punitive stuff comes in too where like if someone can't get a job or like they can't get access to those resources or like their mental health is really bad because they didn't have those resources available I feel like in western culture that responsibility is all put onto that individual, like what you just mentioned, like, oh, well, it's your fault that you didn't just work harder or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that prevents, like, us from seeing people in the whole context 
um, like what we've been talking about this whole episode. And that's why I feel like it's important to balance both. Like I appreciate Eastern cultures for their community centered values, but then leaning too much in that direction also gets problematic because then you like care too much about what other people think all the time. Um, so like to strike that balance between the individual and what powers lie within the individual, but then also with the community as a whole too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I like, I mean, the point about looking at the whole person, because that's really what's going to move people's ability to do that is what is going to move something like abolition forward. Because it is, it's a radical amount of empathy and care. So like empathy is just like the understanding part care is the activation of that understanding. And I definitely get credit working with young people as a teacher, youth work. I mean, I've worked with them from so many angles. I was a tutor, absolute programmer, summer school programmer, uh, youth council manager, just everything. And so you, in those positions in working with young people, you just see all, like all angles. Cause I don't know. And I'm not sure. I can't even explain why that profession allows you to do that, but it just does. And you're able to connect with that. Like, Oh, if this thing was done differently, then this would happen and this would happen, this would happen. And so then you take that, that practice of looking at the whole person and expand it to adults and just a larger community. And for me personally, like abolition was the only thing that made sense because that it's, it's taking the whole of people into account. Yeah. And also, I think people get worried, too, about, like, accountability and punishment, because we want people to be held accountable for the harms they've committed, you know, and people have committed some really horrible harms, right? You're thinking of anything that results in someone losing their life, or things like rape, or things like that. Um, accountability is important, because we want to feel safe. Um, we want to be able to be in community with people without feeling like we're going to experience some sort of harm. But I think because of our economic system, and because of just the way that our prison and policing systems work, it's less about accountability and more about disappearing people, but also exploiting, making a profit off their mistakes too. It's less about the person recognizing what they did wrong and then making amends to their community and more just about like just snatching them up (laughs) and putting them in prison and then using them in another capacity for other people's benefit. But it's not really not getting to the heart of the issue, which is, a harm was committed. We needed that person to be accountable to the person they harmed. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it reminds me again about when we were talking about living in a capitalistic society. Mm-hmm. I feel like that reminds me of that with when like somebody commits a harm instead of like holding them accountable in a way that centers wellness and care um, and then giving them the resources that they need to fulfill some of those needs. Maybe that's why they committed that harm. And you know, move things forward in that way so that things will look better for that person and then for the community as a whole. I feel like it's very much looked at as like that person, you put them in prison and then now they become like a dollar sign basically. And how can we make money off of this person? Um, So it just reminds me of when we were talking about being in a capitalistic society too that centers that instead of centering wellness. Um, So what would you say to someone who is apprehensive about abolition Because I know a lot of people might like hear that term and they might like shut off completely or they're like, oh, that's too radical or something. Um, So what would you say to someone who's kind of on the fence about abolition? I would say to them the same thing that kind of was said to me um, through various people, which was like, well, 
do you actually feel safer? Like, I mean, is the way things are currently set up, does that make you feel safer? Is that working? And for me, the answer was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's not working. Especially when you're thinking about Chicago, that's not working. People are not safer because of this. And so then opening your mind to the possibility that there might be another way of doing things beyond simply using police and, and prisons. I think that's like the first step. Because a lot of times when it comes to people changing their minds, it has to be an experience or the evidence just has to be so compelling to them that it gets them to change their mind. Um, so yeah, I would just pose the question, like, is the way we are currently doing things making us safer? I, I think it would be hard to say, yes, it is. But that would be the question I would pose to them. Because then you start thinking about that, like, it's, I don't feel safer necessarily yeah. hmm what would make me feel safer right what are some other alternatives for us feeling safer or unpacking why you don't feel safer yeah um but that's where I would always start with that question I don't know if that makes sense that makes total sense that makes total sense I'm like when you pose that question my immediate reflex is like hell no <laughs> <laughs> like this shit is not working man like <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's working. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, not, it's not working. Um, and then that fact alone, that just recognition alone will, I think, open you to other ideas of other systems of holding people accountable, keeping people safe. And then, yeah, it always ties back to wellness because it's always up to us. Like at the very least, if you're thinking about policing and prisons, police come after the crime has been committed. Mm. They come after the harm has been done. They don't prevent it. They come after. So it's really still up to us at the end of the day. It's up to us to keep each other safe. It's up to us to address our needs. It's up to us to address other people's needs and try to create systems of support and care so that harms are not likely to happen. Like, I, I don't think I've ever felt safe around the police. I remember, like, one of my first memories, because I grew up in the suburbs. So I remember my fir- one of my first memories of encountering the police was, like, a police officer walking into my classroom and I was like in fourth grade or fifth grade and it was a part of that dare program. (laughs) He just walked in and he had like a briefcase like full of drugs and then he had like a large gun like on him and he just walked in with that and the gun is like the first thing I saw and then there's like this briefcase full of drugs and then they're just using scare tactics the whole time basically and there's like now looking back, I'm like, there was no factual, like, resources that they actually provided us. They were just like, don't do drugs. If you do them, then you'll die or you'll go to prison or something. Um, so I just remember feeling so scared. Like, I just, like, saw that gun and then I saw the briefcase and, like, the fear tactics. And I just felt so scared the entire time. So, and that was, like, one of my earliest memories. So, I like, the answer is no always to that. And, like, also... This is kind of like a sidebar, but every CPD officer that I've seen in downtown this past summer and continuously now, never wearing a mask, never wearing a mask. So that just adds on to like, I don't even feel safe walking past them because they're not even wearing a mask and stuff like that. They're like following protocol with health guidelines. And that's just a very... That's a very like minimal point um, about how, you know, not feeling safe around them. But yeah, that's like something I've noticed too. Yeah. 
I mean, I grew up, you know, my dad and my mom are pretty conservative. So like our view of police, and again, you have people of color who are police, you have black people who are police officers who are friends of the family. And I think the idea of compliance like comes to mind when I think of that. Like I wasn't perceived as, you know, my family was not perceived as a threat. My dad worked very hard to make sure we were never perceived as a threat by law enforcement. And so um, I think that's really interesting when it comes to like safety. I'm safe until I am not compliant. And what you consider not compliant and what I consider not compliant could be two very different things. And then because you have the power to then take my life, if you perceive me to be not compliant, and you aren't necessarily going to be held accountable for it, then this is where this is like, I, my safety is shattered, yeah. right? Because if we have a disagreement about how I should do things and you have the power to end my life legally and face no consequences, then that's not safety. Yeah. My life cannot be based, my uh, safety cannot be based on my compliance with rules I did not even create. Mm. Um. So that's for more people who are like me who, wrote, who were, grew up with cops and the family or cops around or whatever. Just at, thinking about that, like, why did you feel safe? Like, have you ever actively challenged, you know, police officer or not? Or just thought about, like, if you challenged a police officer, what would happen? Or if you disobeyed an order or things like that. Um, or if you were, for whatever reason, perceived as a threat just because. So right now, obviously, I don't feel safe just because of the power imbalance. But yeah, I, w- I wanted to note that just for anyone who was like me, who grew up with cops around, just to question that safety a little bit, that safety net that you might feel. And also knowing that like the common argument too is like, well, not all cops. It's like, well, those not all, like those good people who like saved the cat from the tree or like helped your mom out or whatever, that person could have a completely different job. It does not entail them having a gun. If they're really great with people, if they have that kind, compassion, art, they could do something completely different and we could pay for it. Like they could, (laughs) that is reinvesting funds into community care. Like we could pay for violence interventionists who don't necessarily need guns and it's not sanctioned violence. They could play other roles in their community and still help the people they want to help without being a cop too. Yeah, that's a very good point too. And like that reminds me of de-escalation too. Mm -hmm. I I need to learn a lot more about de-escalation, but I've started to look a little bit into it. And from what I've gathered so far, it seems a lot less cheaper, first of all, to pay for. And then it actually does the job better. Like when you're going in to de-escalate a situation, because like in a, imagine a world where like we did defund the police and move forward with that. Um, unfortunately, violence would probably still occur. So to handle that, um, I've read about de-escalation squads that are like trained in that to go in and they actually achieve that goal of de-escalating and stopping the harm from being done or from being done further versus like when you put a police officer there, there's just harm continuously to be, to being done. Um, mm-hmm. and like, like we mentioned, like there's no solution or no, nothing like that. It's not like a solution focused type of strategy. It's like very punitive, like we've been talking about too. Yeah. Well, the goals of de-escalation and policing are two different things, right? Cause like de-escalation is like centering wellness. Cause you're recognizing one that life here is precious. I want to bring this from a high stress to a lower stress situation so that the people here, their wellness is maintained to the extent possible. Policing is usually involved with neutralizing a threat. Policing is a form of harm itself. 
it's state sanctioned harm, it's legalized harm, but it's still harm, right? So I'm using this legalized harm to try to neutralize a threat. That's not centering wellness. That's just pointing harm in a specific direction and then justifying it either before or afterwards, right? So the goals of de-escalation and policing to me feel very different. And that's why you have an outcome of like, oh, this is more effective. It actually solved our problem versus this aggravated a situation. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I also think of transformative justice, which I also like need to learn more about too. Um, But yeah, what are your thoughts on like transformative justice as well? Um, Just also like you getting, getting to know more about it. Um, listen to a good podcast by Maren Papa, another one, which is really nice where she's talking a lot about transformative justice and it's getting beyond just like, um, restorative, which is what it's like the buzzword that even they use in schools, which is like, we're going to restore the harm that was done. Transformative justice is like, we're going to look at the harms and the reasons why the harms were there in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we're going to address so that this does not happen again. Cause the idea is we don't want it to happen again. So it's not just, I think people sometimes hear restorative justice, you're letting people off the hook or you're not holding people accountable. And this is looking bigger picture, but also very intentional about, no, we, we don't want this harm to be experienced again. So the best thing we can do is, yes, we acknowledge it and hold the person accountable and encourage them to hold themselves accountable. And hopefully they and the person or people they've harmed can make amends. But we're also going to look at why that happened so that it's not going to happen again. At least that's how I understand it. Or reduce the likelihood of it happening again. And that then takes us back to those bigger things of education, housing, income, policing, all those things. Patriarchy, toxic masculinity, racism, Mm -hmm. homophobia, transphobia, all of our isms. (laughs) All the things. (laughs) All the things. But like tackling the ones, because again, if you're centering wealth, I want this person to be well. I want this community to be well. I got to look at what's causing it to be unwell and let's get rid of those things. There's this really good TED talk by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. And um, she talks a lot about like the ACEs score or the um, adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts like people's mental health and also their physical health. Because if you have experienced trauma especially ongoing trauma in childhood repeated repeatedly or even in adulthood you're more likely to not only have mental illness but also like heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune disorders um so if doctors just could map out from like when the client first or the patient first comes in the room to get their aces score then you can be more proactive about centering their wellness too And that reminds me a lot about that. And she wrote a book called The Deepest Well. And in her TED Talk, she says, if if everyone in town is drinking from this well and everyone's getting sick, are we just going to keep trying to like look around it? Or are we going to like take a look in the well and be like, what the heck is wrong with this water in this well, you know? Or are Mm -hmm. we going to keep trying to bandage it and um, find ways around it? So that just reminded me of of that, too. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think (laughs) we double down on on failed solutions because we are 
usually people are incentivized, especially when they're in certain positions, to prioritize the wellness of the system and not the wellness of the people the system is supposed to serve. And so if that's what your focus is, well, then no, I would never investigate the well water because I, the system we've created is what I'm most interested in maintaining because I somehow benefit from this, usually. Um, but if I'm thinking about the wellness of the individuals and the people, then that's like, oh, what is making them sick? Yeah. Let's go look at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And I know like when we were planning out for this podcast, you mentioned to me something about mapping our roles in the ecosystem. And that really stood out to me. So how would you describe that? What does that mean to you? And what would you say to listeners who want to figure out ways that they can contribute to making a change, but maybe don't know how they can go forward with that just yet? Yeah. Um, Well, I stumbled upon an article and I'm struggling for the name, but I will look it up if someone is interested and they want to reach out. But the the idea was that we keep us safe. And so different people within your circle play different roles. Um, And if you're talking about helping your community, um, it's about asset mapping yourself so that you are identifying some skills and gifts that you have. It can be something as trivial as like, I'm great at baking. Okay, cool. I'm sure there's people in your community who could use some food. There you go. It doesn't seem like it's super radical. It doesn't need to be. Someone who's just a good listener um, and willing to just talk to people and just be a sounding board for folks. Someone who's great at de-escalating. Like, you don't mind getting right in there and being like, nope, we're going to calm this down. People who are in the health professions, Um, people who are doulas. uh, It's just the idea is that you are using the gifts that you have to support your community and create alternative systems of care that don't involve policing and don't involve incarceration that are prioritizing wellness. But again, it's coming from your gifts, whatever it is that you have to offer. And then you are working in community with other people who have identified their gifts. And so now you have this nice little ecosystem of people utilizing their gifts to contribute to the well-being of their society or their community. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really like that. And I feel like a lot of people, myself included, I can get very self-critical. And same thing with like the Black Lives Matter movement. I was in the in the very beginning of the summer, I was like really harsh on myself. Like I was like, I wanna do everything. I just wanna mm-hmm. I just wanna get out there and do everything possible. And then very quickly I realized that no, like I, I'm like one human being. There's no way I can go out and like create change in every aspect that needs it. Um, so I really like that point that you made that like figure out what your gifts are, where do your talents lie? Um, like for me, it's mental health, you know, in that department. And I also like really like having conversations and connecting with people. Like that's where this podcast comes from too. So I just like utilize those talents of mine and try to create change in those areas and like donating, you know, whenever I can and just like, you know, spreading word and knowledge with like family members and having those conversations again. So yeah, I I like that point a lot. Like it's okay if you can't do everything on your checklist. But even if, you know, like you said, even if you just like baking, like there's so much you can do just with that. I think it involves like creative thinking too. Cause I feel like a lot of people would be like, well, I'm just a baker. I can't do anything. But like what you mentioned, like that's, that's such an amazing idea. Yeah. Like you can go out and, you know, um, give food to people that need it in your community. And that's like a very out of the box thinking too, that I feel like is very important too. 
Absolutely. I think, I mean, again, our, our economic system has really poisoned our society into thinking certain types of activities are worthwhile and have meaning and certain activities do not. But I know that when I see a homemade cupcake, something in me gets really excited. And I love homemade cookies and all the treats. So someone popped up and it was like, I know you're, you know, doing this activity or whatever, but here's the cookie. We are friends for life. If you're making me a t-shirt, I'm sorry. Like I owe you. I, I just, there's so many things that just give life meaning that we are capable of providing and contributing and creating that we're not even aware of. And also know that, like I had the same type of anxiety at the beginning of the summer, like I'm not doing enough, especially being part of BYP and they're such a dope organization and the people involved are doing a lot of amazing work. And, you know, I was limited in my mobility because like I don't drive in the city. I have like a weird phobia about it. And also like it's a pandemic. So I, was nervous about large crowds and my partner has high blood pressure so it's a, he's a pre-existing condition so I'm just like I don't want to bring anything home I'm also delivering food to elders so I just don't want to do this I'm like what can I do so I focused my energy on the mutual aid and just delivering groceries I had to really remind myself repeatedly like that is still worthwhile it may not be the most flashy thing but it's the thing that people need and they appreciate so you're going to do that and then I got to the point where Towards the end of summer, I saw my full-time job is teaching, and I still have that same anxiety of, like, what can I do? I'm not doing enough. And um, I had to stop myself and be like, listen, you have built these little, this little system for mutual aid. You're going, you have people, you've identified leaders within your groups. They're going to do it. And so then you can contribute to someone else taking this, this on, because mutual aid is an ideology and a lifestyle. It's not owned by one person. And then you're going to now focus your energy on teaching and trying to create wellness in a virtual classroom, which is something that is very much needed right now. And that's your way of contributing for now. So what, how you contribute, my point is, how you contribute may change. It may not be leading the protests if that's what you're doing. It may not be organizing the meets and teaching. It may change as your life changes, and that's okay too, because as long as like the values and the mentality and the ideology you're following is still centering wellness, you're doing the good. You're doing what we want everyone to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I like what you, um, when you spoke on like building a network too, and mm-hmm. that goes back to when we were talking about community care and collaboration too, because like accepting that you can't do it all, you can't fulfill all those roles, but maybe somebody you know can, and then you could like collaborate in that sense and know when to like refer somebody out to someone else too. I think that's like a really powerful thing that also takes a lot of like humility especially um, being a future therapist. That's like something you have to sit with a lot. Like I can't be a good therapist to everyone. Like there's some people I'm going to connect with and vibe with. And there's some people that someone else I know, like one of my colleagues might work a lot better with. So knowing when to like have that humility to be like, I can't do this. I'm going to have to collaborate and connect with someone else that can probably take care of that better than I can. Yeah. Humility is key. Again, it's, it's bigger than you. It's, it's a whole community. It's a whole movement. But also, I think, yeah, taking yourself out of the center is always something you, you got to come back to. It's not about you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you recognize that you're actually centering your wellness, which makes you a better contributor to that collective, because you're centering and recognizing your limits. And when you do that, you're living healthier. Therefore, the people around you are getting the best version of you. And then the community is better for it. Oh, my God. I love that so much. 
I love that point so much. Like I love talking about boundaries <laughs> and I didn't even realize we were talking about boundaries until you brought that up. Boundaries are a form of wellness. That's a form of self-care as I, as I like to say. So yeah, recognizing your own limits and, and realizing when, you know, where your limits end and stuff like that, that's a form of self-care too. And then when you are able to center your own wellness, you're able to show up better for the community and get the work done too. I love that point. Thank you so much for speaking on that. That was amazing. You are welcome. That is my thing that I'm practicing for this year. I just turned 31. So my year is practicing boundaries and limits, especially in education, because you're just constantly like giving and to the point of your detriment sometimes and so you get burned out and then you know no one wins in that situation so I'm trying to be very mindful of like these are my limits this is what I can and cannot do exactly especially as like a female identifying person too I feel like like we're constantly taught growing up that you always have to put others before Mm -hmm. yourself and so you know being a woman um, that identifies as a woman it's kind of like you have to actively resist that notion that you were taught growing up. And I like that Audre Lorde quote, engaging in self-care is not selfish, but it's actually an act of self-preservation, which is an act of political warfare because mm-hmm. you're actively resisting that, that social norm. So that, it reminded me of that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oof, Audrey. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this was such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for sitting down and, and talking about this with me. I acknowledge that it's definitely a difficult conversation to have, but a very important one for sure. Um, so before we wrap up, do you have any last concluding thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? I would say do your research. Again, I am not an expert on this concept. I'm just a new convert sharing some insights that I've gained along the way in my conversion. So make sure <laughs> you, you look, research the people who've been doing this for a minute and talk to the activists who are still doing this work right now. But really think about the question of like, do you feel safe right now with the way things are? And just open your mind to the possibility that maybe the answer is no. And then open your mind to the possibility that there might be another way of doing it for my reluctant abolitionists or my, my late bloomers, I'll call them. <laughs> yeah, it's like going back to that out of the box thinking, like, let's think out of the box. Let's be creative about this. Like, let's find different solutions that might actually help us feel safe, you know. Um, so I really like that point. And lastly, how can people find you if they want to look you up on social media and stuff like that? How can people find you best? Ooh, okay, so I, social media, you can find me on Instagram. It's probably the only way. So on Instagram, my handle is Mocha Bear, Mocha with a K, 24. Um, and then my other one is what I'll be using hopefully more in the future, Wellness Liberation for All. That's my two handles. Nice. So, yeah, that's where you'll find like the books that I'm reading. I'll be posting any podcasts or articles that I find interesting um, that are, but again, centering wellness. And so that's where my, my teaching expertise, my youth work expertise, mutual aid, uh, eventually clinical mental health and doula work will be all found on that page. So that's a way to reach out. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really like, like, I like that profile that you're using, like that account, like, using social media to spread positivity and powerful messages 
because we all know social media can be used for some negative things too. So, but it can also be used for positive things too. So I like, I like what you're doing with that. That's awesome. Yeah. It's my way of just letting my, my nerdy side come out. So if you're a person who just likes learning about better ways to live, that's, that's something to check out. Yeah, definitely. So everyone go follow Marie, go check her out, <laughs> show her some love. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Marie, for being here. This was such a lovely and empowering conversation. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And thank you for creating and holding space for not just myself, but everyone that you've been holding space for and affirming. And yeah, just thank you for the work that you're doing and just all the love and affirmation you're giving everybody. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> As always, I thank you for listening and staying tuned. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with the people in your life. I would also really appreciate if you would subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, give it a five-star rating, and leave a good review mentioning what you like about the podcast. You can also follow the Instagram for updates at SynergyCast, and I have also included that in the episode notes. I have now a new feature, which is a voice memo feature, which I am very excited about. So if you would like to send in your thoughts and your feelings or your personal experiences, feel free to record a voice memo and send it my way. I would love to include your voice in the next podcast episodes. Lastly, if you are willing and able, there is another new feature where you can donate however much money you want to help support Synergy Cast financially. If you do choose to donate, the money would help me pay for several things. It would help me pay for myself, my own energies, my own efforts, and also the money would help pay my future guests especially people of color, for their time, since I believe it is very important to compensate people of color, especially for their time and energy, since many BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, have a history of being taken advantage of and underpaid or not paid at all for their efforts. So any and all ways you choose to support would be very much appreciated. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.